Blood Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 127 of Real Blend, a podcast that can't believe it's going to see new mutants before Tenant. My name is Sean O'Connell, the managing director here at Cinema Blend and a co-host of the Real Blend podcast. This week's episode, we are going to preview Comic-Con at home. Uh, we have a review of a film called The Rental. And speaking of The Rental, we have Dave Franco, the director of that film, as a guest on the show. Uh, the show that is co-hosted each and every week by Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hi, Kev. Sean, good to talk to you. Jake, Gabe, good afternoon. Good to be with you, as always. Uh, that other man in the uh, third chair, Jake Hamilton, Fox 32 in Chicago. Hi, Jakey. Doing well, dude. Yeah, it's, it's a little, I was telling you guys before we started recording, like, and this is not meant to be, like, dismissive. Or, or negative, but just like, I'm tired of talking about Tenet being delayed. <laughs> yes. Like, I, I, like I, I'm like legit just over it. Just tell me when it's coming out and then we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Yeah, I know. Well, we'll we'll mention briefly what the status of Christopher Nolan's latest film is uh, later on in the show. But let's get to some plugs. Uh, a reminder that over on Facebook, we have a community page that everybody can join into. Uh, we have all of these episodes going on to Cinema Blend's YouTube page at the moment. And there's people who are really understanding that it can be more fun to watch us visually, uh, to see some of our reactions, our facial reactions, to see... Um, Jake physically groan at an awful pun, uh, or just to see how sharp Kevin looks today. I mean, gosh, he's he uh, bringing fantastic. his yeah, he really does. He really the crazy thing though is that level. below the waist, totally nude. This is true. Or I'm wearing yes. jogger pants, which don't match my <laughs> outfit at all. <laughs> to be honest, like it looks and, uh, really weird. <laughs> and I will warn everybody too that uh, Gabe and I are both uh, in the middle of major storms, and so if we cut out, uh, that's that's the reason. And and Jake and Kevin will will finish the show strong. <laughs> so uh, get your get your puns ready for the back half of the show. Uh, and of course, we have a sh uh, shop. Oh, so everyone's who has been purchasing shirts and and mugs and sharing all the real blend merchandise that you guys are picking up. Those photographs are outstanding. We cannot thank you guys enough for supporting the show, for marketing the show, uh, for just being as supportive as the community is. You guys are absolutely amazing. So thank you very much. If you guys also want to pick up merchandise you haven't yet grabbed it, we are at cinemablend.com backslash shop. It makes me uh, happy when Kevin sends us at the end of the evening his Real Blend coffee mug set up uh, by his coffee Always. machine ready to go. For the next morning, it gives me a sense of, of peace, like so, like closure for the day. I like it. Thanks, now, it there, there's also a mental element to that when I go to bed at night. I like setting it up and having the Real Blend logo pop up. So the first thing I see at 5.15 in the morning is our logo, which is Yay. awesome. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Well, um, joke's so on we, you because I have cardboard cutouts of all four of us and I just leave them at the end of my bed. So that's how I wake up in the morning. Jake, uh, can you move mine to the couch and don't put any blankets on it? Yeah. Uh, no sheets, no pillow. And and this check on me periodically. You, and have see to, if I'm you have to explain that joke for people that are All right, really briefly. Uh, I got to stay at Jake's uh, abode, the the beautiful penthouse condominium uh, that he's got <laughs> on Chicago's waterfront. And uh, we went out for well. So this was this was a, actually I'm going to embellish this. This was an evening. Uh, we went on a helicopter ride. Uh, Jake pulled some strings because he's an important man in the Chicago community and got us a helicopter ride, which was outstanding. Uh, if, if, to quote Ferris Bueller, if you ever have the means, uh, I highly recommend it. Um, and then we came back. But no, before when did we we ate afterwards, didn't we? We passed this famous yeah. steak Breaded shop steak. or sandwich Rick shop. And Benny's. 
And then we ate. And so Jake, poor Jake, had been up since four something. Uh, and we spent the entire day interviewing Sam Mendes. And then we had a huge meal and we went on a helicopter ride. So when we came back, we were going to watch Watchmen, an episode that he had seen already that I hadn't seen yet. I was going to catch up on. And Jake fell asleep while we were watching it, which is fine. I was uh, it's adorable. Like he, you know, curled up in a little ball and and I finished the episode. And then uh, I said, Jake, I'm going to I'm going to crash because I was going to fly back to St. Louis the next day. And Jake hopped up and he said, cool, man, and went into his room uh, and went to sleep (laughs) with (laughs) with Daenerys. And uh, I had to find my own way on his couch (laughs) and and with no sheets or blankets or or anything. Now, it's a very comfortable. And you've heard he has a very comfortable fold-out couch. It is very comfortable, and I will say... I never say, said I have comfortable blankets and pillows. It's true, and I will say you keep the temperature in your condo uh, at about 95 degrees. So it was very pleasant, very warm and toasty, but... Uh, I miss the I like south. Him, I have to give him a hard time for that. Um, we obviously, here at Real Blend, are a theater-going... Um, podcast. We support, we support going to the theaters. We support cinema and and seeing things on the biggest screen possible. So this has been rough. And it's funny to think about, not funny per se, but like weeks ago, months ago, when all of this started happening, when theaters started shutting down, we were really concerned at the show of like, how how often can we have these conversations if there's nothing to go uh, see? And we're still sort of struggling through like, when are we going to get to see these movies that we're really looking forward to? But we're not struggling nearly as, as much as the theater owner's uh, the theater chains, but but the smaller, the independent cinemas. Um, I know we lost our art house theater here in Charlotte, a two screen manor theater uh, because of everything going on. And so we want to bring your attention to something that that actually launched just today, the day that we're recording. It's called SaveYourCinema.com. And this is mainly aimed at uh, our U.S. listeners because it's by the National Association of Theater Owners, which is a association that backs uh, U.S. theater chains and independent theater owners. And this is, it's a form, it's an online form that you go to, you fill out, and they have the text of an email that goes to your congressman, senator, U.S. representative, and basically asks them to support an act, uh, the Reform Act, that would allow a financial lifeline, essentially, for, for theater chains. And because the concern is right now that if they have to stay closed longer, uh, they're going to have a really hard time bouncing back once we're able to open safely. And so you can go there, you can fill out um, that form, you can send the message automatically, you can, I think you can rework the text of it too to make it a little bit more personal. Uh, Restart Act, I'm sorry, is not a a reform act. Thank you very much, Gabe. So the website's called SaveYourCinema.com. If anybody wants to here in the U.S., go and send a message to your uh, local politician to encourage them to support this Restart Act. It's a financial lifeline Again, for the theaters and for our international listeners, uh, because we have a lot of people who are listening to us in in markets around the world. And that's outstanding to us too. you know, do what you can to go out and 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 back your local cinema, whether it's just attending it when it's safe, um, donating anything uh, in terms of monetary or or time. Even Uh, theaters are struggling right now. We're not 100 percent sure when everything's going to be able to open back up again. So. Swing by SaveYourCinema.com and uh, and see what you guys can do about that. Um, boys, anything to add to that? Or did I cover all the bases? Amen. Pretty good. I like Pretty it. Good? I yeah. just wrote down the information. Amen. Good. Save Your Cinema. And also, um, thank you to everybody who purchased uh, that special Real Blend shirt that we did in order to yeah. help the Will Rogers Foundation and throw some money towards people who are working for the, uh, for the theater chains. Okay. Um, yeah. Kevin had a great idea for the weekly poll on Friday and I ran with it. Kev, it was a landslide. 
you asked us, uh, what is Chris Evans's best movie? And I'm going to give you a little bit of a hard time because of one movie that we left out. But I'm going to give you the four choices. I know uh, which we, movie we left out that I'm, I'm I kicked myself after I sent it to you. And then the movie is Snowpiercer, which is. Uh, oh, that's not my choice. I thought we left out Knives Out. And I think we should have we should have maybe included. I was surprised we included Scott Pilgrim because, like, I don't think of Scott Pilgrim as a Chris Evans movie. I just like he's in it. By the way, but like he's in it and then he's out. I just sent you that text with the four first films that popped into my head. I mean, I I, I didn't think about it too much. Yeah, nope, that's what I went with. I just copied and pasted right into that. All right, so the landslide winner was you can really uh, tell how much care we put into this show. Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Um, but I'll give you the other three and then you guys can. And then, Kevin, I'm going to make you pick of the other three, which one you think won. Scott Pilgrim, okay. Sunshine or not another team movie. Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim did win. Yes. With 11% and by the way, the vote. see, Jake, S- Scott Pilgrim <laughs> is actually one of his best performances. And Scott Pilgrim is just as much of a Chris Evans movie as Knives Out is. I'd argue. I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's fair because Knives Out to me, if all right. So if I were going to define whose movie is Knives Out, it's Daniel Craig's. Is that fair? Or Ana de Armas. Yeah, I mean, one of those two. Yeah. Interesting. And Scott Pilgrim would be a Michael Sarah film, but it has a lot True. of other really strong performances to it. So not, not another, another teen movie is not really. A, well, I guess that is. A no, Chris that's Evans. a that's a Chris Evans. That's movie. a Chris Evans movie. And I know this because I've been haunted. By that damn Jakey Jakey line, <laughs> as long as I have known Kevin McCarthy. That's Jake's name in my phone. Every time he texts me, I, I have a, a beautiful reminder of not another teen movie. Yeah. One of the in greatest. In the grand scheme of things, and I will not go into any more detail, it's not the worst nickname that Kevin has for someone in his phone. <laughs> oh, I know which one you're referring to. You know which yeah. one I'm talking about. be me. God's sakes, if it's me, I'm going to be really it's, upset. Oh, it's he not doesn't even have a, you saved in his phone. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's David Fincher. I, I I have him in there or something funny. We text all considering, the time. Considering that you you did uh, meet David Fincher and talk to him in a hotel hallway. That, I, I know we can't tell that story on the show, so there's really no point in bringing it up. But yeah. I tell that story at dinner parties so often, you have no idea. I want to just mention, too, that underneath the poll, uh, once we posted it, somebody said, oh, what a skewered poll like to lean towards like, of course you put a Marvel movie in there. Everyone's going to vote Marvel. And I wrote underneath it from the real blend page. Like clearly you haven't listened to our earlier episodes where we were hard on not another team movie, like telling people how great it was. I still think that's one of the commentary tracks that we should do eventually because I, I, that, that movie is hysterical. There is <laughs> a be very happy to revisit it. There's a line of dialogue in not another team movie. And then we'll move on that I think is truly one of the best lines that I've seen in a movie in forever. And it's it's Chris Evans. I've told this, I think, before. He walks up to the leading character on the show, uh, this girl who's absolutely obsessed with him, the leading character of the show. I can't remember her name off the top of my head. Um, and he's standing in line with her at, a, at, at the lunch in school. And he starts talking to her about something because his the bit is he has to, it's the, you know, she's all that bit, right? He has to make her mm. the character over and make her prom queen. So he goes up to her and he's like, starts talking to her and she's like, wait, you haven't talked to me in five years. And he goes, 
Actually, it's been more like six because the time you were referring to, I was saying hi to the person directly behind you. <laughs> it was just <laughs> such a specific line, and it's so mean that he actually. Yeah. I, I just thought that line was brilliant. So. I, I love the first time that they see her when they pick that she's the one that has to go. That they have to re, re, uh, do over for the prom queen, and they go, but she has paint on her overalls, <laughs> and but she has glasses on. Absolutely gorgeous, and she's walking yeah, yeah. up the steps, and it's. Yeah. Oh, my God. Randy Quaid is so funny in that Yikes. movie. Oh, all right. Anyway, sorry. I hope Evans does more comedies, honestly, because uh, he's really, really great in them. And uh, and and so one day we'll do a commentary track for that. Um, I want to throw our uh, throw the show to our interview of the week, which is Dave Franco. Uh, Dave Franco is taking on his feature film uh, directorial debut in The Rental, and um, it's pretty solid we're going to review it at the end of this episode but he also was just a really great interview i mean i I know we say this with our guests but it just so happens that when people come on the show they get comfortable you know they they settle into a groove they open up and talk about filmmaking uh and i think we had a really great conversation with dave franco and so without further ado i'm going to let you guys hear it this is dave franco on behalf of his directorial debut the rental First of all, Dave, it's so good to see you again, man. I hope you and your family are doing well. We were all sort of saying how excited we were to interview you. Like you said, we've all spoken before, and uh, you're seriously like one of the genuinely the nicest guys to talk to. So seriously, thank you so much for coming on Real Blend. We appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, I want to talk about uh, actors whenever they're writing and directing a film. That decision they have to make whether or not to cast themselves in a movie. Obviously, Clint Eastwood's gone both ways. Ben Affleck's gone both ways. I'm curious, at what point in the process did you have to make that decision? And was there ever a moment where you were going to play one of the brothers? Yeah, so the truth is, uh, I wasn't originally intending on directing the movie. And at that point, I was going to play the character of Josh that ultimately went to Jeremy Allen White. Uh, But when I decided to direct... I I just wanted to be able to focus on my responsibilities behind the camera. And I'm glad that I didn't act in it too, because there's plenty, there was plenty on my plate. And in addition to that, Jeremy is so good. And I think people, you know, people mainly know him from Shameless and he's been in some smaller movies too, but like, I feel like he hasn't had an opportunity to really kind of show what he can do. And I swear to God, he, Every day he was on set, all of us behind the camera would look at each other and be like, why is this guy not the biggest star in the world? He's just got this really raw, grounded, unpredictable energy. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Every time when I was watching his performance, like this guy feels like someone I would just know. Like it's very, very yes. grounded and very real. Um, so one of the things I found that interesting that you did was perspective, uh, manipulating perspective with the audience. Um, as the movie opens, we immediately think the two people we're looking at are a couple based on what's going on in the scene. And then as the film goes along, you continue to manipulate things. There's reveals that are manipulated later on as well. I wanted to ask you as a storyteller, the power of perspective manipulation with an audience uh, and that push pull and kind of figuring that out and playing with us and knowing that we're going to think one way and then flip the next way. Uh, I found that to be such an interesting theme throughout your film. Yeah, I wish I wish I had a more intelligent answer for you. But the the truth is, um, it was more intuitive on like whose perspective we wanted to be in at any given moment. And I think what it ultimately did is when I talk to people who have seen the film, it's really interesting to hear who they latched on to and who they related to. Uh, And uh, I I think it just it, it says something about the that viewer themselves and their history um, where, for example, 
you know, I, I was lucky enough to do um, an interview with Barry Jenkins about this, and he just kept going on and on about Sheila Van's character because he's experienced, you know, um, levels of, of racial profiling. And so that's who he latched on to. And then I talked to a lot of other people who latch on to Allison's character because for the most part, she is the audience. She, she is the, the eyes and ears of the audience and she's thinking a little more rationally than everyone else. But, um, I, I hope that answers the question. Well, like basically, no, it does. But the idea that in the beginning you want us to think a certain way when we see those two characters and then you reveal that and that happens throughout the film. And I think that's an amazing tool as a director to lead us down the path. Is there a, a push pull of, of how long to lead us down a certain path before you flip it? Well, I think, I think the intention there is to always to just continually try to keep the viewers on, uh, you know, uh, on the edge of their seat and not know what's going to happen where, you know, when you, when you take a step back and look at the overall premise it sounds like something you've heard before, you know, two couples go to a vacation home and then things go wrong. But within that premise, we were like, all right, how can we subvert the genre wherever possible and make things unexpected, whether it be, you know, unexpected scares or unexpected relationships where, um, like you say, in this opening scene, you think that two of the characters are together and ultimately you realize, oh, no, that's not the case. <laughs> But what it does is it yeah. plants this thing in your head where it is, where it's like, oh, but what is the relationship between those two characters? See, which, I, which I pays knew it. off I really well that. later. Love that. Yeah. All right, cool. <clears throat> um, I mean this as a compliment in 100 uh, percent fashion, but all three of us were so blown away by how confident this was, you know, as your feature film directorial debut. Uh, we were we have a little text chain going. We were texting each other during our screenings of just like. This is really fucking great. And listen, I yeah. saw your comedy or die sketch about, you know, getting a blumpkin from Olivia Munn. So I expected <laughs> really huge things from you, but this was a huge step. But I want to ask specifically from visually shooting, um, you use a lot of natural light, uh, it, a lot of scenes in the darkness. You rely on things like fog to set mood and tension, things that I would assume a director on, on a set might want to talk themselves out of because it doesn't have a controlled environment. So can you talk about some of the obstacles that come with doing that and how you overcame them? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> part of that was because of necessity, because we were a small crew and we couldn't bring giant lights out into the woods. But, <laughs> but knowing that we had those limitations, we were like, okay, let's not force something. Let's use what let's, let's use what we're working with and try to find the best way forward. And so I was lucky enough to work with this young DP named Christian Spranger, who is going to be the biggest DP in the world. And I'm going to look back one day and be like, I can't believe I got that guy to shoot my first film, yeah. but he's mainly known for his work on the TV show Atlanta. And oh. if you look at that show, it tells you everything you need yeah. to know about him, oh. where if you think about, how many productions have filmed in Atlanta over the past decade? Yeah. And then you look at that show and you're like, oh my God, he found a way to make it look different than anyone else. And it just speaks to his unique eye. And so he just, I, I really leaned on him a lot throughout this whole process. And he's, he just really gave me the confidence to make bold choices and to like, you know, we, we created these longer shots where uh, everyone's in the frame at the same time and it almost feels like a play and the camera's moving in and out. And, uh, and there are these, these shots that ultimately 
um, are a little scary because we're like, you know what, we probably should go in for coverage, but I think there's something really bold and exciting about just letting this play out and really feeling the, the tension in the space between all the characters. And so I, I give the DP a lot of credit. Awesome. Weirdly awesome. enough, one of my favorite shots in the film is, is, the, is the actual drive to the house and the way you kept two images on the screen at the same time with the car still going and then the motion of the drive. And I was like, I just thought that was such a brilliant thing because it wasn't necessarily a slow dissolve. You, you just kept two images on the screen at the same time. I was like, that's a really interesting choice. I've seen it before in old school filmmaking, but man, that was freaking awesome, man. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's it's an early moment in the film and it's ex- essentially the drive that takes us from their normal life to this rental home. And yeah. so we were like, let's get a little weird with this. Let's set the tone early on so people know this isn't a straightforward thriller. Like you're gonna get some some things that are a little out, outside the box and unexpected. Dave, I'm gonna ask you a question that I actually asked the guys earlier today. Like, is this is this weird? Is this a weird question? But about 30 minutes into the movie, I legit had to pause it and text the guys because they'd already seen the film. And I said, guys, I need to ask you a question. Is the dog going to be okay? Because I am like, I'm such a mass. I don't know if you heard, I had to mute my mic. I don't know if you heard my dog. I'm such a massive dog guy. And whenever I watch like a thriller or a horror film and there are shots of the dog, my first thought is like, something's going to fucking happen to this dog. Like, like something's going to happen. You got Taylor walk, you know, kind of sneaking around. I don't really know what's going on. And so I kind of just, and into so the whole movie, I'm just on tension just, and like, yes, I'm a hundred percent captivated, invested in what's happening with the humans, but there's a part of me that's going like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on with this dog? And I'm yeah, curious no. if there, is that a conscious choice? Definitely. So yes, okay. what's, what's interesting is, and without giving too much away as a viewer, we, for whatever reason, we're way more invested in the safety of animals than even the humans on screen. And it's part, I'm sure it's because it's like, these are helpless, innocent creatures and like (laughs) nothing, like you can't do anything bad to them. And so the truth is um, there were iterations of the scripts where there was no dog. And it really was a last second decision to put a dog in there. Really? It does is exactly what you're saying, where it adds this immediate tension and and ultimately it weaves its way into the actual plot too uh but where for the most part it's just like what you're saying it's like don't do anything to this dog (laughs) i learned that one of the funniest line readings in the movie is allison when she she's now on molly and she's messing with the with the um hot tub and she just sort of laughs to herself like I lost the dog oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's so good at that moment that has been the universal biggest laugh. In oh, no kidding. Really? <laughs> That's <Yeah>. funny. <laughs> you know, Dave, I, I, um, I'm a pun fan. So the bro puns was something I just really found uh, to be very delightful. Um, and, and I was just interested to know how many others there were that didn't make it in. And the idea that you gave Allison the best one, which is absolutely whatever the word, I can't even say it. But um, was it a design to give her that final one? And also um, just were there other bro puns? that you guys just kind of kept going with well, those those were all the ones that we had written out i let the actors kind of improvise and and uh and see what came to mind i remember dan throwing out scarlet brohansen uh, <laughs> but yeah it was always designed for allison to have that final one because like it's the brothers kind of doing it together and then it's like allison from a distance being like wait i can play too and so it just gives her just this little moment of sweetness 
at the end of the film, it should have said directed by Dave Frank Bro. That I, I was. That's, I don't know why I, I, that didn't happen, Dave. Come on, it's man. It's a missed opportunity. Dave Frank Bro joint. Yes. <laughs> That's great. So Spike Lee's gonna sue somebody. <laughs> there is a theory in the horror genre about um, morality and morally guilty characters, uh, how they can be fodder for slashers. Um, and the innocent or the guilt-free tend to go uh, last longer. And I'm just curious if you bought into that at all in, when you were putting the story together. Definitely. And I, I want to be delicate about how I talk about this because, again, I don't want to give anything away. Sure, but, sure. But if you take a step back, there, um, you know, these characters, uh, no one's inherently good. No one's inherently bad. They're very real. They're all flawed in their own ways. And, um, and so... <sighs> Throughout the film, some of them are making more unethical choices than others, mm-hmm. but um, everyone everyone has their moments of like, hey, you made the wrong decision there, and now you're vulnerable. Uh, so I guess let's just leave it at that. Yeah, okay. but it was, a, it was a conscious choice. Yeah. Um. So you've actually worked with some of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And my, actually, my wife and I were actually just rewatching The Disaster Artist the other day because I freaking love that movie. And I was interested to know, like, what you pull from filmmakers that you've worked with. I mean, specifically, you work with your brother on that film. Do you pull, do you do? Were you watching him as a director and like pulling and like were there things that you pulled from his direction from that film that you utilize here? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I've always been the type of actor who has been curious about every step of the process and I can't help myself. I want to talk to the DP and the writer and the production designer and just like hear about their process and why they're making certain decisions. And I try not to be annoying about it. I try not to overstep my bounds, but I have been like, you know, cherry picking from all these people that I've worked with knowing that I wanted to do this one day. And so thinking about like the, the disaster artist specifically, I mean, with my brother and Seth Rogen and his crew, like what I took from that film and what I'll do forever is they really set a a comfortable environment on set where they encourage every single person to voice their opinion if they think it'll help the film in any way. Mm -hmm. So essentially there's no egos. And the rule is best idea wins no matter who it's coming from. And so, uh, so I, I definitely brought that over to the rental. And in addition to that, I think the smartest thing I did was I, I really vetted the crew in, a, in an extensive way where obviously I wanted people who were really talented, but on top of that, I needed people who were going to be very friendly, nice people who were going to work their asses off because as a first time director, I just, I needed people whose number one priority was the quality of the film, as opposed to some people who have maybe been around a long time and they just want to get home so they can watch the basketball game. And so yeah. uh, it was a very long process putting the crew together. But in the end, I was surrounded by all these really nice, talented people who made my job much easier than it could have been. I thought you were going to say that you shot you shot rental on 35 and digital room style room style. <laughs> Go ahead, Sean. Uh, they were Real quick. You know what we realized about that? 
so Tommy Wiseau, he, he did that on, on the, the best group. thing ever. And, and we realized since he did that, he could actually do a 3D version of the room if he wanted. And I think, I think he was thinking about that. I, I want to give him, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and think that he was way ahead of all of us. That's tell so him funny. to do it. Someone needs to tell him to actually release the 3D version. <laughs> if he has a 35 and a digital camera shot of each one, you're totally right. Oh my God. Wait, Dave. wait, my computer messes up and I come back in the conversation. All I hear is a 3D version of the room. Yeah. <laughs> what the well, shit no, did I miss? We were Dave's inviting about, us over to watch yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, We had a conversation on the show recently about um, directors and how when they deliver a movie right off the bat, it might be their passion project. um, They pour their heart and soul into it. And one of the next things that we say to them after is, great, what are you going to do next? Like, what are you directing next kind of thing? Um, And it's almost unfair to me to to just assume that people who direct a film, you know, have a million of them in them. And in fact, you do see some directors who have one or two that are really passionate that they're passionate about, and then they just stay in the machine. And so I'm curious, you know, coming off of your first one, where do you fall with this? Was it something you just wanted to scratch and now you're content to go back to acting? Or are you sort of looking at scripts and saying, I got to get back out there right away? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You you hear stories about Ari Aster, who has 13 scripts that he just has laying around his house. Uh, <laughs> and so I I don't have that many, but um, I do, I obviously, I would love, love to continue directing if I get the chance. Um, and first off, I have, I have a pretty strong idea for a sequel if I'm lucky enough to get the chance to continue this story. Um, but in addition to that, um, my wife, Allison and I, we have actually written a script during the quarantine, uh, for me to direct and for her to star in. And it's, uh, it's a romantic comedy. And, uh, the reason for that is we love the genre, but just looking at romantic comedies, uh, especially over the last decade or so, I just feel like the bar has been set really low where there's this tendency to make them or just give them this overly bright aesthetic, right? And and also the the characters and the storylines are very silly and nothing's grounded. And so mm-hmm. we started looking at some of the classics like um, When Harry Met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, Pretty Woman. And first off, they, they're very grounded. The acting is legitimately great. Mm-hmm. And they're all shot like dramas. Like they look good and so we started thinking about like why no one approaches romantic comedies from this like more tasteful smart perspective and so that's what we're trying to do with this one um but yeah we we're, we're basically just trying to find any excuse to collaborate again just because we had such a great time together <laughs> that's awesome uh, Dave, I want to ask about the the trailer to this movie because whenever I found out that we were going to get to interview you, uh, I wasn't super familiar with the film. So I was like, oh, before I watch the screener, I just want to kind of pop on and see what the movie's about. And the, I feel like the coolest compliment I can give the movie is that the trailer gives away nothing. In fact, I was bragging about your movie to a buddy of mine. He went and watched the trailer and he was like, oh, like that looks cool. I'm like, no, dude, like not, not screw the trailer, but I'm telling you like the movie isn't like the best parts aren't given away. I'm curious about that balance between like, obviously you want to draw people in and you want to sort of show them that this is something that they've never seen before, but you don't want to like, you don't want to put the goods out there. You don't want to put everything out like, you know, in, in, in two and a half minutes. So trailer trailers are obviously very tricky where you're like, I, I want, I, I need to make it intriguing enough to bring people in, but I don't want to give away too much. And especially with this film where there are turns that want to hold on to. I was really proud of in regards to the trailer 
is that we don't give away anything in regards to the character dynamics and and in any of that. Um, but I think I think what you're saying is is accurate in 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 that um, the trailer it does kind of just look like oh okay you know this is a story that feels somewhat familiar but I think what makes it hopefully stand out is that you see the care that's being put into all of the details where you you see that it's it's beautifully shot by my DP you see that there's real acting in it as opposed to a lot of genre films that are a little over the top and the characters are like these two-dimensional stock characters it's like you feel that there's a little more weight to it all and uh and hopefully intriguing enough for people to be like oh i'm curious to see and then and then when they watch it they'll again hopefully they'll be like oh there's way more layers than i even expected and it'll be even more satisfying than they thought you know, Dave, I'll, I'll end on this. Um, uh, one thing I really loved about the film was the score. It was almost like a heartbeat, um, like pumping um, as I was watching it. And I, I and I found myself almost in a rhythm watching your film, like in a, in a very interesting way. And I, and I think I, I say this sometimes when I talk to filmmakers, but I truly mean it. You, you utilize score as a leading character. It's part of the story. Um, and I just wanted to talk to you about the idea of where to input those elements and kind of like as the tension builds and building up that heartbeat quality to it. Because I think the score really does play such a pivotal role in the film. But also going back to the first question I asked you, you can mess with perception and manipulation with score as well. So can you talk about just like directing your score almost like a character? Yeah, I'm so happy that you felt that way. The score is is one of my favorite elements of the film. These guys, um, Danny Bensey and Sonder Jurians, who are geniuses, and they, they've worked in the genre space a few times before with um, Enemy, Martha Marcy May Marlene, Simon Killer, and most recently the HBO uh, series The Outsider. Enemy is a masterpiece, by the way. Oh, the Denis Villeneuve. I too. love Enemy, man. Oh, man. Totally. Yeah. And like... They, they, they're like, their superpower is that they are able to create such tension with such simple sounds. And like you said, there's like a long stretch in the, the latter half of the film where there's this underlying rhythm that almost feels like a heartbeat, right? And what it does, like, kind of psychologically, and not to get too heady about this, but it, it makes you kind of aware of your own heartbeat, which in turn makes your heartbeat kind of go a little quicker. And then before you know it, you're like feeling a little kind of short of breath. And they just know how to just manipulate the audience in that way. And, and also, I just feel like they, they approach the genre in a different way than, than most composers where yes, they know where to lean into kind of the heavier kind of like sting moments, but they try to stay away from that wherever possible, where it feels all a little more elegant and just, just for lack of a better word, just a little strange. And it just makes you feel a little off kilter and, and it just adds to the whole experience and just the tension that you're feeling. Yeah, man. Well, we appreciate that. I think we're, our time is up, unfortunately, with you. Our but time we, is we, up. We, I wanna, yeah, 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 I want to plug the fact that the rental is going to be available on VOD um, on July 24th, but also something really cool that not a lot of people get to say, um, a select drive-ins. How cool is That's that? That's awesome. This is a perfect drive-in movie. It it's is. a good one. It's a good one. We, we feel lucky that, yeah, it, it actually lends itself well to that environment. Uh, and yeah, we're, we're going to be, the, the weird thing about it is like, as much as I want to be playing in more standard theaters throughout the country, 
uh, we're going to ultimately probably play in more theaters than originally planned because of the driving component. That's so cool, man. You're bringing them back. I I genuinely, I'm so happy that you guys loved it. And I appreciate all the thorough questions and smart questions. And it it, it means a lot to me. Yeah, Dave, I want to get, I'll just say thank you so much for coming on the show and and how much we really appreciate having you and, and tell everybody to check out the rental as soon as they can. Thank you guys. Thank you so much to IFC Films for giving us time with Dave Franco. He was an excellent fit on the show. It was cool too, after the fact, um, after we cut off the interview, we got to stay on and talk some spoilers with him and get into some nitty gritty about some of the details about the ending. And that's when I feel like the wall between him really came down because he got to gush about some of his decisions in the back half of the movie. But obviously we don't want to run any of that and spoil it for you guys. So um, check out the rental and we'll have a full review later on in the show. So stick around. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly, and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Um, I want to get to Talking Points and the Comic-Con at Home preview now you boys don't generally go to comic-con i'm curious uh as people who avoid the melee of san diego do you have any interest in checking out these panels or presentations uh from the safety of your home uh thursday through sunday uh yeah absolutely um i you know just if only because i don't have to deal with that that's kind of what's most appealing to me you know it's funny i feel like I, I, I went to Comic-Con one time as a fan uh, with one of my best friends, uh, listener of the show, Chase, back in 2008, um, which was the, the big movie that year was Watchmen. That's when we got to see the trailer for Watchmen, which was a huge nice. deal. And a lot of I've heard a lot of people that go to Comic-Con on a regular basis say that around 2008 was the last time that it was like a fairly accessible mm. event where like, yeah, maybe you'd have to show up early if you wanted to go into Hall H, but like maybe like 90 minutes, two hours early. You didn't have to sleep over a night the night before. Oh, um, so like, you know, the, my, whenever I keep hearing about these panels, my knee jerk reaction is like, oh God, no, cause I don't have to wait. And then I kind of had this feeling of wait, like I don't have to wait. I can just, mm. I can just go in. So that's honestly, that's why I am kind of like excited about this because I can just press a button and go straight in. Yeah. I've never been to Comic-Con, but one of my favorite things about Comic-Con is like, that it is such an amazing event that you do feel its presence, even if you aren't there. Um, I'll mm-hmm. never forget when the Suicide Squad trailer premiered at Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. I will never forget. I remember where I was when that thing played and how many times I watched it in the car after it premiered. Like There was just something so awesome about I love that. First of all, as somebody who watches or reads Comic-Con from home, I, I do love that they give the audience the exclusive watch first, um, mm-hmm. that the people in Hall H get to experience it 
individually without the internet. Um, and I've always found it to be a really cool special thing. I don't know what other cons do things like that, but I've always found uh, the trailer releases to be amazing. Now, that being said, in the year that we're in, I don't know what we're going to be seeing. I don't think Marvel has anything crazy going on uh, at the, at Comic-Con. But Sean, you know a lot more about Comic-Con than I do. So you take yeah, it, Yeah, so the, the two biggest uh, movie panels that are happening at Comic-Con this year are Bill and Ted Face the Music and uh, The New Mutants. Both of those are ho- hosting panels. Right now, both of those are down for August 28th openings now the question becomes will they hold on to those dates um and it just seems like they're the closest ones to have footage to show the new mutants i guess is going to show their opening sequence uh at their panel uh they did some press beforehand but um it's it's a really weird situation because these movies are going to host their panels and they don't really know what to say you know they're not a hundred percent certain of when things are going to open even the TV side of it, Comic-Con over the years has become a very heavy uh, TV pr- uh, presence, has a, has a very strong TV presence because like Game of Thrones, so much cool. Yeah, yeah Walking Dead, uh, a lot of Netflix shows go there, Stranger Things will show up. Lost a lot of the big. cool genre stuff is going to the, the cable services or the streaming services, so they've started to dominate. Star Trek always has a huge panel. Um, and that's in terms of the shows, Picard and, and and things that are going to that CBS All Access program. So there's even more um, television stuff going on this year. But I will be curious to see how the movie panels do it, um, because the one thing that they can't protect from that instance. And Kev, when you saw the Suicide Squad trailer, I think Warner Brothers was smart to put it out immediately after. But there's a lot of times when people are still figuring out ways to sort of bootleg and with the panels now going online immediately, I know studios are concerned about piracy. You know, they're not going to show anything that they want to protect. It's stuff that they would want to get out as marketing anyway. So um, you might see another Bill and like we don't have a full Bill and Ted trailer, you know, like there was that sort of short tease. So I bet you a full trailer is part of that panel. And same thing with New Mutants. They just put out a tease right before this panel. They might have even more footage, but we'll see. I have a question. Um, are yeah. they... Like in terms of logistically how it's going to work, usually a big portion of the panels is people in the audience being able to have a and a and ask, are they allowing for that or is that a logistical nightmare? Is it just one person is sort of hosting a virtual session with these actors and then that's and then we're all watching? Like, how does that work? That's a great question, Jake, because I'm not sure. I'm not sure if if they're even going to be pre-recorded panels that they just play at those designated times. Um, they are maintaining a, a, a schedule. So like the Bill and Ted is, uh, panel is at a certain time uh, and you could go and watch it on the Comic-Con website. I'm really worried about that site crashing. Like, yeah, I don't know how many people they're going to be able to maintain um, and questions. I think this can be really difficult for them to pull off. It feels like it's going to be something that's just pre-recorded. And then they'll show whatever bit that they want to show, which does eliminate that really cool aspect of like the Q&A is what. It's the worst and the best element of a Comic-Con panel because you get people who come up and can waste time with a really awful question. And we've seen this in press conferences when we're at Junkets. But sometimes you get those really magical moments when a fan gets to talk to somebody who they are not going to get a chance to interact with. And it's just the highlight of their day. And so I don't know if that's going to be able to be replicated this year. Um, You're going to see. So on the TV side, his dark materials uh, that HBO show is one of the biggest things that's coming. And then Walking Dead is going to have a ton of stuff and fear the Walking Dead. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a thinner lineup. Uh, it feels like people, are, the studios want to do their own thing. Uh, DC and Warner Brothers have their big DC fandom in August, but um, 
But Comic-Con, I give them credit for sort of blazing through and trying to figure out the solution to doing it at home. And it does mean that a lot of people uh, who don't get to go to San Diego and, and might never get a chance to go to San Diego will get to participate in some of that. So um, if you're not 100% into Comic-Con, I want to turn everybody's attention to something that's going on on Saturday and Sunday also. And this is selfishly in my wheelhouse. This is a, a fan-driven event called Justice Con. Uh, that is for Zack Snyder, Zack Snyder's Justice League, and most of the things that he is developing uh, in terms of the DCEU. Now, this stemmed out of, and it's also going to be an online panel. It's going to be available to anybody. It's going to be free. You can just tune in. They have a YouTube channel. Uh, they're going to have these panels going live. They have gotten, uh, and it's just the, the Snyder Cut family wanted to have a big presence at San Diego Comic-Con this year. When everything sort of got flushed and nobody was going to be able to go to, Con uh, to Comic-Con, they put together this online Justice Con panel. And it's run by these uh, two girls that go by the, the nickname The Nerd Queens online. It's Nana and Cole and another girl named Meg, um, who the three of them, three women together who put this whole thing together. And wow. I uh, they asked me to be one of the panelists, which I'm really thrilled about. I'm going to be Sunday evening at 4.15. Wait, wait, Sean. Yes. You're not officially a panelist unless you have a badge. Well, hold on, Jake. That's funny that you say that because I have a... It fell on the floor. I do have a, a panelist badge <laughs> for Justice Con. <laughs> yeah, I was almost going to um, come up with my uh, my Thor hammer, which is right next to it. I do have a panelist badge wow, for Justice Con. look how this official you are. Was, yeah, that logo was fan-drawn, uh, fan and it's all the hands of the Justice League members... Uh, reaching out That's and cool. grabbing the hand of a fan, which I think is really cool. Are, is that you? Are you the fan? Four fans, by fans. Mm -hmm. that, that is my hand. Yes, that I'm, that I'm holding out. I think, um, I think it's really so, cool that they did the, the actual badges because I feel like mentally speaking, it's nice to be able to ha hold that. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And they have to so wait, do you walk through the O'Connell household like 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 Wayne's World, like holy, holding like, it out? Like, excuse me, excuse me, Michelle, it's dinner all time. <laughs> <laughs> I get to sit first at the table. Yes, I come and sit first. Um, but in, in addition to me, because that's like the least important, uh, they got Ray Fisher is doing a panel uh, wow. who plays Cyborg in Justice League. They got Fabian Wagner, who's Zach's cinematographer, uh, who's going to come in and talk about the the stuff they shot for the original version and some stuff that he might be doing for Zack Snyder's Justice League. In addition, uh, Ray Porter is the voice of Darkseid. And he's going to be included in Justice League now because Darkseid does show up. And then on Saturday, the 25th at 530 Eastern time, uh, Zack Snyder is doing a panel. So this fan driven, you know, convention that they put together haphazardly got Zack and Ray Fisher. And Debbie Snyder is going to do a panel on Sundays with this uh, podcast group called Snyder's Amazonians, uh, which is an all female driven podcast where they talk about the um, diversity and uh, female uh, representation in Zach's movies. And Debbie's going to join them for a panel conversation. It's a ton of really great things. It's all free. You can go find it on YouTube, Justice Con, and uh, just check out some of it and come to my panel if you guys want to. I've got a couple of things planned, a couple of fun things planned. So I'm thrilled for uh, for the group who's putting it together. And I'm psyched. I'm going to the beach with the family. And I've already kind of told Michelle, like, Hey, I don't know what we're doing on Saturday, but I'm probably going to have to watch Zach's panel because I'm so invested. I'm emotionally invested. Because, I mean, God knows when you're on vacation, Saturday's the day where you yeah. probably normally don't do anything. No. Mm. no I mean, why would yeah. we? Well, right? you, Sean, so wait, really quick, just to give you a shout out. Can you tell people like when and where to find this, like how they can go out and 
Yeah. So I would go to YouTube and search for Justice Con um, and they have a page that you can subscribe to. All of the panels will be hosted on Justice Con's YouTube page and the schedule should be up there now at this point. But again, the highlights are uh, on Saturday, Ray Fisher goes at four o'clock. Zach goes at five thirty. And then I'm the highlight of Sunday. Of course, if you're listening to Real Blend, I'm the highlight. I will be 415 on Sunday evening and um, and I have some cool things planned. Sean, how, what, so what is like what is the design of the panel? So in the sense of like, are you going to be able to take questions from people? Like cause I, I, I thought it was cool when Snyder did his reveal for Justice League, um, the Snyder cut, and he had specific yeah. fans pop up in the Zoom call and then they all took turns and kind of saying things like I feel like that's maybe a way they could play with that. I absolutely plan on taking questions. I would like people to come to the panel with questions um, the way that I have. OK, so I'll tell you guys what I plan to do, because it's not a big Please. surprise. Um, I'm going to get interviewed by the by the three ladies who are um, running the convention because they are hosting each panel. And we're going to cool. talk about the book and, and the stage that the book is at right now. Um, then I'm going to read um, a chapter. I'm going to read not not a full chapter, but I'm pulling out portions from the chapter that I pulled from the lost chapter that got removed. And I will explain to everybody why I got removed and I'll read some sections from that chapter. Um, Cause I can't read anything from the book itself. The book belongs to a publisher now at this point, but the chapter that I pulled belongs to me. So I can read that if I want to. So I'm going to read some cool passages cool. from that and get some of the good quotes that I have from that. Then people can ask questions. And then so I have, Sean, um, you're yes. kind of releasing the O'Connell cut. I'm a little bit releasing the O'Connell cut. Yes, literally. Then, well, here's the big reveal. And so, if anyone in the Snyder Cut family is listening to this, this is this was the part that I was holding on to. Um, the publisher gives me 15 copies of the book to do whatever I want to do with, uh, willy nilly. So I'm going to give three of them away during the panel, and um, I'm going to we're figuring out a way for me of uh, how to pick how to pick three people. You're going to have to be there and ask a question. Like uh, it'll probably get picked up the people who ask a question because I want to give it to people who come to the panel. But you will guarantee you'll guarantee get a free book and I'll write personalized message inside the book for the three people that I pick. So and it can't be you guys. Sorry, because you're going to get your own copies. in. Well, you're going to get them anyway. (laughs) Oh, then I'm not even going to come to the panel then. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want you there. How about that? I don't want you. To well, now I'm coming. <laughs> All right. So that's Justice Con. Anyway, um, gosh, let's get to this one. Christopher Nolan's tenant has been delayed uh, indefinitely. And the indefinitely uh, word is it, that's not fair. Like Variety ran with that. And then a bunch of reports said the WB is um, going to make a, uh, an announcement plan imminently. They're circling back around to what Kevin, I think, had suggested. I forget who brought it up on last week's episode. And if you really want to hear our in-depth thoughts on this, go to last week's episode. Go to Real Blend 126. We really dove deep into what Tenet should do in terms of opening overseas. But it's sounding more like Warner Brothers is going to try to go for that global market, um, open in uh, international markets where it's safer, where you can go to theaters, uh, try to start generating some revenue. Now, Kevin, I don't know if you heard this bit. People are saying late August International Labor Day in the U.S. Did you hear that? Well, I mean, I, I think I saw that on our text thread. Um, you know, I, I do think it's interesting if it opens up internationally first. I mean, that's a whole nother discussion, which we did get into on the on last week's episode. But I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think we're getting tenant on Labor Day in the United States. Do you really think we are? 
No, I don't. Well, well. Also, wasn't another one of the rumors that it was going to be opening up potentially staggered here in the U.S. Where like mm-hmm. it might open up one city on this week, and then the next week it might open this city, and then this city might not get it till then. That they might just start doing a right. yeah, whichever cities doing are doing better. Release. Yeah, I read that somewhere. Too. So yeah. the yeah. question is, of the four of us, yeah, who who gets it first? Sean. Yeah, Charlotte. Charlotte is the safest. <laughs> no, but seriously. No question. No, uh, Sean is, has the best three. Uh, out of our three cities, he's, his is the best. Well, I thought oh, Charlotte was. I think that Washington has pretty good numbers. North Carolina's numbers are not great right now. D.C. and Maryland, Virginia's numbers have been pretty good. I thought so, Charlotte was like back to normal. I thought you said. Was that was that a couple mm, weeks ago? Um, The numbers in North and South Carolina are getting bad. But it's mostly beaches. It's the beach communities where people are going, which I'm heading to tomorrow. So good luck to me. Um, but it's the people who are like really willy nilly on the beach, not, you know, packing in bars and things like that. So yeah. I think that that's hurting South Carolina, in particular places like Myrtle Beach and all these summer hotspots are, are getting hit pretty bad. Charlotte's not too bad. Charlotte's been OK. Nothing opens in Charlotte. Nothing. We will never be the first city to get something cool. So uh, that's not going to happen. I could see Jake getting it in Chicago, honestly. Um, and I can see Kevin getting it in Washington, but um, I don't know. We'll see. So boys, trip? Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers has not made that announcement yet. Uh, we expect it to be soon and uh, we'll share it on our social medias. Once Kevin, you get to that, you, you've talked about traveling to wherever tenant opens. If it opens somewhere outside D.C., if it were to open to Chicago, would you come to Chicago to see 100%, it? hundred percent. Yeah, I, I would. I would go. I would fly to Chicago. I would pay for my own flight to Chicago, even if Warner Brothers sent me a link to watch it at home. Oh, did you I doubt did. that, Jake? Well, I didn't know because I'd imagine he'd have to take a flight. So I didn't know where, how to know where he stood via planes. Oh, to Christopher I Nolan will grab Kevin me anywhere. Now, 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 Gabriel, who's wrapping us up right now, he could hop in a car and drive up. But, and I absolutely but will. But because he just wrapped us. Sorry, sir. No room at the end. See, no room at the see end. Kevin, Kevin would be on like the Dumb and Dumber scooter, like getting from Washington D.C. to the Chicago. There were the flies yeah. all over their face. I always loved the flies. I get thirteen miles to a gallon on this hog. <laughs> all right, so tenant, that's your latest tenant update. But we want to point out that despite the fact that um, that film's release is a little bit uncertain right now. There is an unusual sort of light at the end of the tunnel in terms of Hollywood productions, and that's the fact that there are some major films that have been returning to their studios and figuring out ways to get around uh, filming in revamped sort of quarantine protocols. And that includes uh, Jurassic World Dominion, which is Colin Trevorrow's film, to the point where Bryce Dallas Howard was showing some really badass bruises on her arms and side because of stunt work that she's been doing. So they're fully into filming. Um, you hear the rumor about uh, Matt Reeves bringing the Batman uh, out of location shooting and trying to do more stuff on the lot. So they're trying to ramp up their production. Uh, story today about Mission Impossible 7 is back filming and Tom Cruise is looking at a couple of international locations. Uh, and I thought we had one more game. I kind of forget what the other one was. Avatar oh, still Uncharted. Filming. Uncharted is underway in Berlin yeah. or at least ramping up. It- and and um, internationally, there are a bunch of uh, like smaller indie stuff, too. It's, there's a lot. Did you mention on. The so, Matrix? Oh, The Matrix is another one. Have they started up? I don't know if they started up. I know they shut down, but I, I don't know. I mean, I would imagine that's oh, probably an international. I thought they were filming here uh, domestically, though. I thought they were filming in like San Francisco. Only they did for a little while. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, probably not only. Okay. No. 
Um, hey, I, uh, and Gabe, just to con- I'm sorry, not Gabe. Uh, Sean, just to keep the bit going, yeah. um, just to continue this joke that I love so much, it's Trevorrow. Like tomorrow, and, and the reason, like the reason I know this is because he he was he told Kevin and I in Hawaii it's Trevorrow like tomorrow. Jake, I cannot stress to you how little I care. <laughs> I'm just saying we're a professional <laughs> film podcast. We should get people's names right. Trevorrow is that what I said? Trevorrow. Trev- yeah, yes. I know. It, I actually do know it's Trevorrow like tomorrow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The point being, I'm encouraged <laughs> by the fact that these productions are circling back around and getting ready to uh, to be there if and when theaters are open. Yes, Gabe. Oh, I just want to point out, it looks like Matrix 4 did start um, shooting in Germany recently. Awesome. Nice. Good. And Lana good. Wachowski is the only director on that, right? It's not her sister as mm-hmm. well. It's just Lana this time, which Correct. I think has been interesting. Yes. I'm actually interested to know why i wonder i mean i don't know if the uh, the, the other sister was not just into doing the another matrix film but i, I right. it starts making me wonder about like the joel and ethan cohen relationship where like was lana always the director and you know you know what i mean I, I, and because mm-hmm. um i'm trying to remember the specifics behind it but i know joel and ethan switch off or sometimes it'll be cohen brothers sometimes it'll be yeah. just joel cohen but i wonder if lana mm-hmm. was always the director do you think she was I don't know. I that's I, I only saw her involved. Um, but yeah. I, but I do have a Matrix question for you guys. I don't know if you know the answer. Um, as you know, I don't know if you read like Hugo Weaving, Agent Smith was originally written to to return for Matrix Four. Um, but then he had a a, a theater commitment that kept that that over uh, overlapped when they were going to film Matrix Four, which is not obviously not happening anymore because no theaters are up and running. Do you think that they're going to try to write Agent Smith back into to Matrix Four now that I'm assuming he would be available? Yeah, or is it, why or not? Is it too late into is it too late into the production? Jake, are you I'm saying sure. they might weave him into the production somehow? Let's leave it there. All right. <laughs> That's, that's pretty good. I would like to see that they're going to. I think the point being <laughs> that, was that, was that we're good. really, really happy that, that big movies that are expecting theatrical releases are still happening and we're treating it like the industry is trying to figure their way back. I'm I'm very curious about Matrix 4 because isn't there the rumors about like young Morpheus and all that jazz? Like, uh, well, that's I don't understand like that the, the only person that survived the Matrix movies isn't coming back. Like right. Lawrence Fishburne is alive. In the in the series, and he's the only one not coming back. Larry Fishman's got that Ant Man and the Wasp money. He doesn't need to work. <laughs> one thing I will say <laughs> about Matrix Four is this: um, I, I I can't remember reading a quote recently about Matrix Two and Three, but Two and Three felt so uninspired, clearly because they were mm. they felt like business decisions and not story decisions, in my opinion. Um, I think maybe what Lana Wachowski might do with this is is actually get a good solid Matrix sequel out of this i mean like two had a great car chase sequence which we all love there's some great action scenes in two but story-wise two and three just didn't i don't love the stuff in zion i just Not found that I. to be real it's, it's wasn't there it's a so dance party wasn't there a dance party yeah there's like a rave oh, yeah, yeah like, like a very a sweaty lengthy, rave a lengthy just, rave and then, just, the, and then the stuff with the architect yeah i just I, I don't know those films were so uninspired but like there was nothing remember how anticipated the second one was oh it was such God, a big deal but I do. I think, went at midnight. Yeah, part of me wonders though if Lana Wachowski. I'm sure she's aware that those two weren't as good as one. I'm sure she is, and I wonder if four might be a um, a redo, like a, a, or you know what I mean? Like a, maybe it'll maybe it'll it'll help bring the f- franchise back Dude, full circle. Yeah. Just this past week, I thought Bill Pope, the cinematographer, came out and said 
the work that we did on those two sequels is inferior. Like he knew in the moment they knew yeah. it wasn't working and they tried their it, it best to like find they, their way through it. But Bill, they, they took yeah. themselves way too seriously. Like, like, like the first one was so much fun. And then two and three, which was just like a weird dive into this mythology that they were trying to create it. Like they just took themselves so seriously I, in two and three. They forgot to have fun. It's funny. Did to I me tell that, you guys? Oh, I'm sorry, Kafka. No, go ahead, go ahead, Sean. Sorry. Did I tell you guys how the Matrix Reloaded got me on TV, got me uh, my TV career? No. I, I feel like so. I've told you guys this story before. All right. We're no. going way off track with this. The The point being, <laughs> sorry, Gabe, that um, film productions are coming back and we're really excited about that. But anyway, <laughs> um, I was working at the local uh, newspaper here in the market in, in Charlotte, and I was their arts and entertainment guy and their movie uh, reviewer. I started the section and. Uh, brought them the idea and I was like, hey, you should have an, uh, an arts entertainment guy and and uh, you could run a movie section. And they were like, yeah, you should totally do that. And I sort of built that from scratch. And I was doing that for a couple of years uh, here in Charlotte. We were still new here and I was exploring the um, film community, which is small. I mean, in Charlotte's not a huge city, but you guys both know that in your markets, there's, you know, the same amount of media people that you run into. And the NBC affiliate um, did a, a bit, a gimmick. That was uh, trading trading spaces. And this is to show you how far back this goes. Uh, Katie Couric and Jay Leno switched places for a week. And Katie Couric, who was doing the Today Show, she did the Tonight Show. And then Jay Leno came in in the mornings and he hosted the thing. And it was wacky. You That's know, cool. like, look at these two trading their places. And so the local NBC affiliates, of course, their GMs latching on to any kind of original idea was like, you guys should do like get your anchors to trade trade jobs with people. So they essentially uh, the three anchors who we loved watching in the morning said, uh, we're going to do this. You know, we're going to trade places with people out in Charlotte. And um, and so tell us what job you do. And it was the week that The Matrix Reloaded was going to have its press screening in Charlotte. So I sent an email into the anchors and I was like, do you guys want to review The Matrix Reloaded uh, ahead of time? And the one guy was like, absolutely, I do. Like, I'd love to go to that screening. So I got to go on the morning show and be an anchor. And um, he got to come with me to the Matrix screening and he got to write the review and they did it like a bit, you know, like he came sure. to our office and pretended he was writing a review and <laughs> they cut together a whole package. But then they put me on the TV and um, I did the morning show and it went so well, like it was it's. You know, it's not hard. <laughs> you can do it. And if you're charismatic and you can read a prompter, you know, it's no, pretty easy it to keep, do. Keep telling me about how, how it's not so difficult easy. my profession I mean, it's is. It's so easy that literally anyone can do it. <laughs> that uh, I just got. So, but at the end of it, I'll never forget. <laughs> the girl, um, the other host, the co-host at the end of it, she said, um, this is one of those lines where when you hear it, it just changes your career path. She said, um, you're really good at this. You should totally do this more for us. And I was like, I would love to. And then I followed up with her afterwards and then stayed on the NBC affiliate and just worked my way into junkets and just kept getting. Look at you. I know. Like, I don't have any Emmys to hold. Obviously. Oh, these, these, where <laughs> oh, do these, these things, things come from? These? these old things. Oh, they just toss them out. So I owe it to uh, The Matrix Reloaded, as bad of a film as it is. I probably would not have a, a TV career and, uh, That's a and great story, be on actually. the junket circuit if not for that guy accepting my email and saying he wanted to trade places. That movie for me is just friends in a weird way. Yeah, I, 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 that's the film that led started my whole career. That's so it's so interesting. Jake, do you have one? Was there one that started everything? 
Not really. For me, for me, it wasn't a movie in particular. Just because I kept sending emails over and over again for uh, like fifty-seven weeks, and finally they were like, "Just stop, please." But how please, did you please. get on the press lists in Houston, though? Was that hard to do? Well, there was really no one in Houston that was on television covering film. So once the local and I, you know, all, all the stuff that we all know and we all kind of like take for granted for knowing now, I had to get a crash course very fast. The whole concept. Yeah. Of, of, a, of a PR firm, the whole concept of what a junket was. I had to learn all of that really fast. Yeah. Um, so once the PR firms started finding out, because what would happen was I would review the movie after it came, like the week after it came out. I'd pay to go see it in the theaters and then review it the next week. And then all of a sudden these, these PR firms started going like, wait, there's someone like on TV in Houston doing this? Yeah, so yeah. they reached out to the station. They said like, who is this kid? Does he want to do a junket? And then uh, they had to call me, explain to me what a junk it was. And uh, and now here we are. Does he want to propose to Anne Hathaway in Brazil? <laughs> like, like you do. Like like one does. As, yes. Because Houston's does. like the fourth major market, isn't it? It's a huge market to not have representation. It's, 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 it's the fourth largest city in the country. Surprisingly, it's only the ninth uh, biggest market in the country. And it's because okay. it's surrounded by other big markets like it's got it's got Beaumont to the east it's got uh, Austin and San Antonio to the west it's got Dallas mm-hmm. to the north as opposed to a lot of major markets are just that big city and there's really nothing yeah. around so gotcha. it's it's a big big city but smaller market than you would think there you go mm-hmm. well there's there's a, a traditional real blend tangent uh, brought to you by the three hosts of real blend all right this week in movies I want to point out that um, Scoob the animated film is coming to HBO Max. And uh, along those lines, you can check out our interview with the great Tony Cervoni. And in addition to our interview, which is in the Scoob episode, uh, Tony came back around because we did a commentary track with him about uh, Space Jam because he was the lead animator, the that lead animation so director on Space Jam. Well, now, Jake, people will be able to find out how fun it was because it's going to drop uh, as a bonus episode this week. So, again, have your we Space Jam. We haven't dropped Copy. No, we haven't even haven't even released it yet. No, uh, John Krasinski too is coming up someday. <laughs> we have an amazing John Krasinski. That's interview such that a good interview. It's really really good. I feel like we, can you guys hear the Don't thunder? Don't us, Gabe, just because you weren't a part of it. My lord in heaven, that's thunder. Yes, thunder is booming at my house. It's wow. very very loud. Um, Animal Crackers is an animated film coming to Netflix that Gabe tells me has a massive cast. Um, it's not the Marx Brothers uh, film. But it's an animated movie that's going to be. Are you looking up the cast, Gabe? Because I would like to hear who's in this Animal Crackers film. And coming to Amazon Prime, you guys can finally see Radioactive. Uh, the boys. Radioactive. Radioactive. Rosamund Pike. I was wrong about that. Kevin was correct. It is Rosamund Pike. And she was uh, outstanding in their interviews, which you'll be able to see on their YouTube channels. Kev, did you post yours? I haven't posted mine yet, but she gave. She was. Uh, she gave me a very interesting long answer about Fincher and Gone Girl, which I've. I'll put it up at some point. Uh, and also coming to VOD is Dave Franco's film, The Rental. Now, you got to hear him talk about it in our interview. And The Rental is it's weird. Like, there's a bunch of things we can't talk to you about because there's just some really great surprises uh, for people to discover. So, um, Jake, do me a favor. Give me like a, a like a breakdown of what it's about uh, without, you know, going far enough where we sort of ruin what what the what the hook is. Well, you know, a lot of people listening have probably experienced uh, the idea or the concept of renting an Airbnb. And so I would say this is everything that you never wanted to happen while you're renting an Airbnb. So imagine like absolute worst case scenario and then turn it up to 11. Yeah, I kind of don't love that 
we're on our way to one tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, a lot of those thoughts were going through my head as I was watching this film. I like yep. the fact that it's, um, you know, you hear the term slow burn and, and it applies here. It's not this like over the top rampant, you know, serial killer type story. It's psychological uh, um, horror that makes you think a lot about decisions made by people. Uh, I'll, I'll say it that way. And then, as you heard in the interview, we gushed with uh, with Dave just about like a lot of the technical choices that he made. Really impressive as a uh, first time director. And so um, I would 100 percent recommend this. I'd give it four stars out of five. Where do you guys rank it? How many stars are you giving it? Yeah, I'd probably say about four out of five. I was really impressed. Really nice, tight 90 minutes. I think I think with credits, it comes at like 87 or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's funny. I hadn't seen the trailer going into it, so I didn't really know what direction it was going in in the third act so that that direction that it goes what it becomes in the third act was really a surprise like i was perfectly content with with i mean you talk about how like the beginning was a slow burn i just thought that that's what the movie was and then it really ramps up in that last act and i went oh like i didn't know that that's what this movie was and so i really actually was very pleasantly surprised by that Kev, what do you think? Yeah, I gave it a four out of five as well. I, I thought Franco really showed some promise as a, as, a, as a thriller filmmaker. And I think that his editing choices and shot choices were absolutely fantastic. The cast, I thought, was just incredible. I'm, I'm blanking on the gentleman's name who played Dan Stevens' brother in the film. Uh, hmm. But uh, that performance was I'll look it up. outstanding. Like, that kid grounded the film in such a special way. Um this movie is very interesting because it's the first 30 minutes are pure character building. And that's what makes the scares so great towards the towards the end of the film, because when you actually care for the characters that you're watching, it makes the horror and the thrilling aspects way more immersive for its audience. So I found myself like truly invested in these people. Also, I as we, t as we told Mr. I don't know if we brought this up in the interview, but we told Dave Franco that the film messes with perception, right? So it, it messes with this idea of manipulating perception of its audience. And I think a director has a beautiful way of being able to play with our emotions and not know what we're getting ourselves into until he tells us or she tells us what we want, what what, what the story is going to do for us. And I find that to be a very interesting tool. And I think he utilized that perception manipulation very, very um, strongly. I gave it a four. That actor's name is uh, Jeremy Allen White, and uh, he is he's outstanding in it. And then, of course, it uh, also stars Dan Stevens, who people know from The Guest, and he was the Beast in Beauty and the Beast. And then uh, Dave's wife, Alison Brie, is fantastic in it as well, too. So check out The Rental. All three of us uh, will tell you that it's really, really good. And then you guys can send us your reviews of it via social media. We want to hear what you guys thought about it. So uh, on to the blend game for this week. We are celebrating the films of Paul Greengrass, um, and I found this to be a challenge because I deeply, deeply respect a lot of Paul Greengrass's work, but I don't know if I would ever say that I love his films because they are heavy, heavy stuff. Um, even things like Green Zone, uh, 22 July, uh, which I really respect the way that he told that story. Uh, it's not something you just want to sit down and pop on. Uh, that he, he likes to explore... Uh, terrible situations, uh, sometimes often rooted in, in terrorist acts. Obviously, with United 93 and the 22 July, uh, he was immersed in the Bourne uh, franchise for parts two and three, and then re he returned for Jason Bourne, didn't he? Come back mm -hmm. to do that yep. fourth one yep. with him, too. So, um, I'll go first, and I will say that his best film by far is United 93, 
but I can't pick it um, because the game's favorite. So I'm going with uh, the Bourne Ultimatum because the Bourne Ultimatum to me is when that franchise and him in particular and his approach to it uh, clicked. You know, I think he was trying to figure out how to get into it and take over for um, Doug Lyman, who directed the first Bourne film uh, and try to make it his own. So Greengrass spent supremacy sort of playing around with how he would do the, the character and my one critique at Paul Greengrass is sometimes his action is too choppy. I know he does immersion and he just plunges his camera into it. And it's a lot of POV shots or really up close facial shots. Um, and that's disarming to me, uh, a little bit jarring. I, I, I prefer that's actually why I think I love Koran so much because Koran doesn't do that. He steps back and he lets you see everything that's going on. Um, Greengrass wants you in it. So he puts you right in it. And if you're if it's Matt Damon chasing somebody through hallways and over rooftops, you're running with them kind of thing. And that's an aesthetic. I get it. He chooses it. Um, but the 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 chase sequences and the set pieces in Ultimatum are to, are to me the best of the Bourne franchise. Like that's when everything just sort of comes to fruition uh, he figures out exactly how to do it. Should have left well enough alone. I don't think Jason Bourne is that good of a film. Um, it's going back to the well one too many times. But um, yeah, it's funny, too. In my mind, the Bourne franchise is underrated because I don't put it up there with Bond or Mission Impossible. And I probably should. I probably should give it more credit in my own mind than I do. But I would put those two franchises above the work that's done in Bourne as an action franchise. Um, but Ultimatum is going to be my my favorite Paul Greengrass film. So, Kev, where are you at? Yeah, Ultimatum is incredible. I mean, I, I went United ninety three, and only because that's the only, it's the first film I think about when I think of his name. I mean, is it my favorite? Mm. I, I don't think any of his films are my favorite. Uh, I don't rewatch. They're so heavy. Yeah, I don't rewatch Greengrass movies on it at at all. Really, I don't think I've rewatched any of the Bourne films in a long time. Ultimatum was an outstanding action film. But the problem I have with the Bourne film is the exact reason you just gave. I can't stand some of the action set pieces because I can't see it. And to me, that is a again, I love Paul Greengrass. But when you can't see action, my first thought is there's a lack of choreography. There's a Mm -hmm. lack of actually training and learning the fight choreography. You watch something like John Wick or one, two, or three, when you bring in stunt guys to direct these films and you are wide and you are long for seven, eight minutes in, a, in, a, in an action scene that Halle Berry and Keanu Reeves are choreographing and physically doing it before your eyes. Um, the aesthetic that you're referring to of of being that close up, just, to me, it's a little more lazy. I, I don't find that it, it, the action comes across that well. That's why, why I didn't go down the Bourne route. I mean, I like those films a lot, but... Okay, but can I stop on something just for a second there? Because I want us to discuss this. Because let's take, like, a car chase in in one of the Bourne films. They're edited in a way that, like, things are crashing into everything, and you're exactly right, you can't see what's happening. But we know that he's staging the car. It's, you know, he like, it's happening. The the action is there. I can't understand that choice of... It's like wasting it. I don't want the audience to understand what's happening, so I'm going to make it really kinetic and mix it up. Is it meant to be like what it would be like for Jason? Like if, if you're like if you're Jason in that moment, yeah. you're like looking all over. Like you don't really know. Like like you you don't have the ability to like step out and look and see everything. So is he trying to immerse us in such a way so that we kind of feel how he feels? So that like we don't really so. know you, what's going on. Oh, We're looking all over the place. That's definitely the 
concept that he's going for. But he just doesn't execute? I don't think that it works because, like, like, that's why every time I refer to an action scene in a film, like, I always look at the Bourne films and go, that's how I think action should not be done. And then Mm -hmm. I I point to filmmakers. Now, don't get me wrong. Borrell Tomatum had some insane action scenes. And to Jake's point, yes, he's trying to put you in that seat. But I've seen POV done so much better than I have in the Bourne films. I've seen POV yeah. done where I can see it. I have. I mean, and he comes from a, Oh, sorry. Gabe. He comes from a, uh, I just want to point out the, uh, that style. And I, I think he's spoken about this specifically, but he comes from a documentary background. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it, it's based in immersion, but I think a lot of it, that is the aesthetic itself comes from the idea of like, okay, what if there was a camera here when a guy came rushing down the street, you'd miss the shot. You know, you wouldn't get the shot. It's about that frenetic, mm-hmm kind of thing i think he i think he's kind of reflecting on like what documentary filmmaking is which That's is you get it or you don't and it has to feel kind of yeah organic and 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 real i just feel like as an audience member like you watch action scenes that nolan does you're seeing everything you're seeing like there's there's a lot of work that goes into the choreography of a dance that a camera does with an actor um and i feel like again i enjoy the born films i just find those i'm with you i find it to be frustrating the other day uh, one of the Bourne films was on the TV upstairs. I couldn't tell you what happened in the action scene. And it was on screen for a few minutes. I could not tell you who was fighting who, what was going on. And again, I get the style. It just doesn't work for me as an audience member. I appreciate when a filmmaker really kind of shows you what they're doing personally. And I'll bring up the mission films um, because yeah, no matter go. the director, I think I think Cruz probably says... Hey, we're not going to do that. Oh, <laughs> because yeah. We were just watching Mission Impossible 3, and uh, I'm amazed at how JJ's camera, and JJ does it. JJ does sweeping shots. You know, oh, his camera's yeah. always in motion. When he's with the running at the end, that when he's running, just like that long shot yeah. was, yeah. oh. And, and he's not. It doesn't chop up. It doesn't, it Dude, doesn't, you know, break away. So look at the car chases in Fallout. I mean, like anytime you're in yeah. a car with fallout and they're doing that chase scene with Rebecca Ferguson, like you see every aspect of it. And, you know, Macquarie is a brilliant mind. I don't think Greengrass is doing the frenetic style to make us mad. Obviously, he's trying to create an immersive environment. I just feel like it's almost in a weird way too much immersion. Well, if that, if that makes sense. The, the, the places where it works are fistfights. The yes. fist fights in the Bourne yeah. franchise yeah. are they hurt. Agreed. You, like when when Damon bursts through a window and there's someone in there yes. waiting for him, they go at each other in a way where that that style works because I, I want to back out. You know, I want to be like, dude, step back a little bit. Yeah. But, but I mean, I, it, I, sometimes I like it's overwhelming. I want to sit with these scenes. I want I want to be in the scene. And I feel like that's the thing. But going back to United 93. That yeah. Uh, the reason why I chose that film is because it's the it's it, it was a film that came out in a time period where people were doing nine eleven type of stories and films, and it felt like those were being done for profit and for they're profiting off of what happened right. And yeah. when I saw and again I don't know for sure. I just found it to be too early for some of those stories, especially Oliver Stone's World Trade Center. I just it, we were I wasn't we weren't ready for that yet. I don't think. Um, but this story he told in United 93 was so important and so uh, representative of the amazing heroes that were on that plane that helped bring the plane down, essentially to keep mm-hmm. keep it from going to whatever destination it was going to. Um, and to me, 
I didn't. I don't think about that story enough when I think of 9/11. I I think yeah. about the towers and I think about the Pentagon, but you don't hear a lot about that particular story of United 93 because it it ended in a it ended in a horrific disaster. But it was nowhere. It was like people were talking about the towers and the Pentagon. Those were the two mm-hmm. leading stories. And I felt like for a filmmaker to give this story air, to give it breathability, to tell this story and then to work with the actual family members of the people who died. Like the actors got to meet the family members of the people they were playing. Um, and to me, it was, it was, it was, it was a story that needed to be told. I, I think that a phenomenal filmmaker being put behind the camera to tell that story and to give that story levity and give it weight was why the film worked for me. And like I told you guys before, I believe he uses the original uh, Twin Towers plane crash shot in the film. And if you watch the way he shoots, like you're talking about the frenetic element of his shots, he blends that shot perfectly together from the perspective of the air traffic control area. Well, so that's exactly yeah. what Gabe is talking about, the documentary style, where like right. anyone it else would have taken, done a shot at the tower, you know, like up close in the tower. But for them, it, it was just it was in the background because he was so focused on the air traffic right. controllers that was brilliant the way I that agree. he portrayed that. Yeah, that that when I first saw that film, I walked in yeah. with, do I need to watch a 9-11 film or is it too yeah. soon? I walked out with, oh, my God, I'm so happy. I know more, more about the story now. So it was like yeah. it was a it was a really, really important story that needed to be told. And, you know, there's no big stars in it. It is told very much like a documentary, like you're saying. But the way he handled the plane hitting the tower, I thought was so it was done in a very tasteful way. I mean, like like there, there could have they, they, like you said, they could have made that more Hollywood. It could have been like mm-hmm. right there on the ground. It could, you know, but for me to step back and not sensationalize that in a film and use it as that moment you're referring to yeah. is just looking from the control tower. I just feel like he paid so much respect to the families. And the people who lost their lives in that particular plane. And I felt like their story wasn't told enough. And I'm ha- I'm just honored that I got to experience a film that let me live their story and let me live the possibility of overtaking these terrorists and stopping them from wherever they were going, even if it meant yeah. everybody losing their lives. And to yeah. me, that's like that's a film that I walked away from going, damn, I am so happy I got to see this movie because now I have a better understanding of that day from that perspective rather than what I saw in the news specifically. Well, I love it too. It's a Brit, a Brit filmmaker making, you know, a story about America's darkest day, you know, and I think that that separation almost allows him to approach it with a, with a clinical eye almost. And it, it I mean, that, that was my number one movie. It's a masterpiece. Decade, obviously. It's a masterpiece. The day that it came out. So, yeah. Jakey. Uh, before I throw mine out, I'm going to say just one quick thing about the Bourne movies, which is that I think that they're good. Like, I like the Bourne movies, but I I think the reason that I would never put them on the level of, of Bond or especially Mission Impossible is I think Jason Bourne is an inherently boring character. Yeah. Well, like, I, like I, I love Matt Damon. Yeah. But if you told me to explain, like, like, like really yeah. explain, like, tell me about Jason Bourne, I'd go like, oh, he doesn't remember who he is and he's real, really ticked off about it. Like, and that's. 
That's it. Yeah. And he runs a lot. And there's always someone in the movie that goes, oh, my God, it's Jason Bourne. <laughs> yeah. The, and there's um, the, the one thing about him, too, which I, I, I've i said this on the podcast and I hate it. I hate indestructible heroes. You know, like yeah. nothing stops Jason Bourne. Literally, yeah. like he gets through everything. Yeah. And that gets which is why I love to... Ethan Hawke, because like, yes, he does end up winning at the end of every movie, but he gets the crap beat out of him for yeah. two hours before Did that. You happens. say Ethan Hawke? Ethan Hunt. Wait, I think oh. I, I, yeah. I, I thought think he I, said, I Ethan said Ethan Hawk, Hawk. too. I probably I said Ethan Hawk. I probably said Ethan Hawk, but I meant Ethan Hawk. Uh, my <laughs> my pick is uh, Captain Phillips. Oh really? Uh, if I mean, if only because Oof. I think it yielded. Um, you don't like that movie? Well, I'm just, it's devastating. Like most oh, of Paul I, Greengrass's yeah. films, it's emotionally yeah. devastating. Yeah, United I just think Tom Hanks, that, that, yeah. that is Tom movies, Hanks's yeah. finest scene. It's yeah, Tom Hanks's finest I, scene. Uh, without question. And, and so I, I had to choose that if only because it yielded the single greatest moment of Tom Hanks's career, which is yeah. like, 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 is that your blood? No, that's not mine. And to Gabe's point about the, the, the documentary style filmmaking, I'm sure you guys know this story, but for people that don't know, that scene was not scripted. That person that was working on Tom was a real medical professional, and Paul told her, treat him like you would treat a patient under these circumstances, and ask him the questions that you would normally ask, and do what you, like, I'm not going to script you, you do it. And Tom, you react accordingly. And okay. that direction yielded what I think is the, the single greatest moment of acting in Tom Hanks's career, where he just wow. two hours of tension that's just built up, not just for him, but for us as an audience, like built up because the whole movie, you're just watching it going like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Mm. And all of that tension, it's like someone pulled out a cork is let out in that moment. He just that when, when he starts looking around and saying like that blood's not mine, that blood's not mine. And he just mm -hmm. loses it. And then I feel like that's when we as an audience, we both are allowed to breathe, but then we also inherently finally come to terms with what just, because you can make the art like you haven't breathed for two hours and for the first, like you're finally able to breathe and then you have to accept everything that just happened to you. I think mm -hmm. it's a masterful film. I thought the direction was incredible. I think, I think aside from that moment, it's, it's, um, uh, one of, uh, uh Tom Hanks's probably top five performances ever. If not, I'd put, I'd probably say, I think Castaway and Captain Phillips are his two best performances of his career. Um, and, uh, Hey, guess what? I, he I didn't just, get an Oscar nomination for it. I, I, it blows my mind. Like it blows my mind. He didn't get an Oscar nomination. Didn't Barkhad Abdi get an Oscar nomination mm -hmm. for that? And he, and he, he and he improved his famous line, right? I'm the yeah, captain now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm the captain. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah that was oh, improv. Yeah. But if you, if you go, yeah. if you go to like, it's interesting. I, I think what we're kind of unfolding here is that Greengrass's docu style works in heavy drama better than it does in yeah. action. Like, yeah. like, like, for example, when you're looking at United 93, I mean, same thing as what Jake was saying just now about the nurse. Weren't there real air traffic controller people, like uh, control people who are actually on set? I think some of the people who are film are actually real oh, air traffic controllers. So the way we were talking about submarine, like authentic submarine conversation, he does that for air traffic controllers. Like, it makes it so riveting yes. of how much they have to pay attention to where every plane is at any given moment. Because you, I'm blown away by the approach to that. The reason why the docu style works so heavily in these moments is because you forget you're watching a film. Like that's what happens. Like, like when you, when I watched United 93, I thought I was reliving nine 11 for real. Like, like, like in the sense of, as I watched it, I'm like, this is not a Hollywood film. I'm, I'm, 
I'm here. I'm I'm with the characters. And like same thing right. with Captain Phillips, like the way Hanks, he, what is he shirtless in that scene? I remember he's so vulnerable and so naked, literally, um, that the way that scene is shot, that's where Greengrass's docu style really shines. Like that's where it really like narratively, that's where it works. And like, you know, like you said, there's some great stuff in the Bourne films, but he really is great with drama and making it feel this like very immersive and real. That's why it's important, I think. All right. I want I want to get to his. He's got a movie coming out this year um, with Tom Hanks. And it's supposed to come out on Christmas Day, uh, which I've learned about. You know, I, I heard this title, but I didn't know what it was. It's called News of the World. And it's uh, Paul Greengrass directing. Tom Hanks is starring in it. And it's a, a Texan traveling across the Wild West, bringing the news of the world to local townspeople, agrees to help rescue a young girl who was kidnapped. And I so, guess Tom so Hanks like, is the main guy. It's the outsiders. True grit. It's true grit. Yeah. <laughs> With Tom Hanks. The searchers. It could be the searchers. Yeah. News of the world. It's a drama Western with uh, Tom Hanks directed by Paul Greengrass. And I'm pretty intrigued by that. I mean, I think that sounds pretty amazing. So Tom I want to see that collaboration. Three movies come out this year. Uh, well, does Greyhound really count? I mean, I'm curious. Well, I mean, it was, it, was, it was supposed to come to theaters, and then BIOS was supposed to come to theaters, and then, oh, yeah. and then that one. Um, so I want to go back to this uh, best actor race that, that Tom Hanks got left out of uh, for Captain Phillips. Because this is fun to do revisionist Oscar history. I want you to tell me if you would replace any of these people with Tom Hanks uh, in Captain Phillips. All right, let's go. Matthew McConaughey, Dallas Buyers Club. Yep. You'd replace Matthew McConaughey. No. With- all right. No. no all, right. Phillips. all right. All right. McConaughey. Leave McConaughey. <laughs> Jake was going to say yes to all of them. <laughs> leave McConaughey. McConaughey won, actually. Yes. Yeah, I know. And uh, leave DiCaprio. DiCaprio, Wolf of Wall Street. Which, leave by DiCaprio. the way, DiCaprio's Wolf of Wall Street performance is better than every performance you're going to mention combined. She would tell a Gia 4 for 12 Years a Slave. Great movie, but I think I think DiCaprio's performance is it, it, I think DiCaprio's I think Chiwetel's performance is phenomenal, but the movie itself is better than the performance. I think. Who are the other two? All right, uh, Christian Bale, American Hustle. That Take Bale out. Take Bale out. Put Hanks in. And Bruce Dern, Nebraska. Oh, I love take, Nebraska. Take Bale out. You take Bale out and you put Tom. But Bale still, out. but give it to DiCaprio. That okay. that's the movie DiCaprio should have won for Revenant. Eh. Okay. I love hey. the Revenant. It's okay. I love the Revenant. Oh, the Revenant's fantastic. I uh, I like the Revenant. I do not love the Revenant. All right, interesting. So Tom Hanks, you got John. Kevin is pro bear hmm? for being too nice. Uh, what's that? Kevin is pro bear, so he didn't like the Revenant. No, I thought the Revenant. Oh, How many true. times have you guys revisited the Revenant? Uh, More than you would once, think. Once, once, and because uh, I showed it to Michelle, and she was floored by it. Floored. Okay. All right. It's beautiful. Oh, no, no. Dude. It's beautiful. It's a Emmanuel Levesky. Chivo cinematography Ooh. is the only Ooh. reason why I, I don't find that film to be as I don't think DiCaprio should have won for that movie. I really don't. That was my number. That was my number one of the year. The it's year a, was it really? Yeah. Yeah. Revenant it's was a, your number yeah. one? I liked it. Curious. Didn't love it. All right. Audience picks for uh, Paul Greengrass. John Palmer. Uh, Jim Mehta. Joseph Lapilio, Le- 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 Joseph Lapilio, and many, many others uh, said United 93. Susie Q chose Bloody Sunday from his earliest days. Anna, 
Randy Buss, and others chose The Bourne Ultimatum. Michelle, Overly Garrist, Griffin Schiller, Stephanie DeLise, and more chose The Bourne Supremacy. Uh, thank you so much for participating this week. Oh, Gabe, you're going to have to come on and explain this one to me because it says that uh, for next week, you can reach out on Twitter using hashtag cliffhanger blend. Uh, or you can let us know like, via uh, realblend.cinemablend.com. Okay, so he says, no, not your favorite scene from the movie Cliffhanger, but your favorite cliffhanger ending in cinema. Now, are there a lot of cliffhanger endings in cinema? Enough that we could choose from? Yeah. There are a lot of, um, like, trilogies and stuff that okay. have, like, a cliffhanger in the middle of them. Interesting. Um, then there's, you know, Nolan's whole oeuvre. <laughs> is available for okay. you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a good one. That's a good All one. Right. There's so a lot. Yeah. Hashtag cliffhanger blend. Um, so you guys can play along on social media, going to real blend uh, and letting us know uh, which your choices are. A lot of people sending us emails. I want to thank everybody who is weighing in uh, by sending us an email to real blend at cinemablend.com. And that is also where you can send us an email. If you want to an email review, if you want to, and we will read it here on the show. Uh, this week's comes to us from Anastasia Creighton uh, or Anastasia Creighton, um, who has been very active on our social media channels. I see her weighing in with films that she's watching and movies that she's been rediscovering. She's becoming a very active voice in the Real Blend community. So welcome, Anastasia. We're lucky to have you here. Your review uh, has the subject line, the best movie podcast ever. And it says, I've been in quarantine since the beginning of March. I have done nothing but listen to episodes of Real Blend. I've filled my days with listening to new and re-listening to old episodes. I've lost count how many times I've re-listened to the Quentin Tarantino interviews. And I'm going to pause it there for a minute because I hear that from a lot of people. Like the I two just hour... re-listened to it. Yeah, Jake just re-listened to it. That Tarantino episode is going to be... That's a Hall of Famer. Like, it's just this, the amount of people who find us through that interview and the amount of people who tell us that they go back to re-listen to it over and over again... Uh, makes me because I every time I hear somebody bring it up, I stop and think about what we went through to uh, to pull that interview. Speaking off. of Jason Bourne, we had Jason Bourne uh, on the <laughs> Jason show Bourne ourselves, uh, both of them, the L.A. one of getting ourselves out there and everything with the uh, with the tequila and then the New York one with our technical issues. If you if you haven't. If you've made it this far into the episode and you haven't listened to the Tarantino episodes, something's wrong with you. But anyway, let's continue on with Anastasia's great review. She says, Kevin's insights on camera shots and how a score can affect a film have changed the way that I watch movies. Jake's passion for Tom Hanks and Star Wars makes me be that way about my favorite actors in movies. I love how Sean is always looking for the emotional element from a film because I am the same way. I've been a fan of Jake's and Kevin's interviews for years. I watch all of their interviews on YouTube and I'm always impressed with their thoughtful and insightful questions. When I found out that they had a podcast, I got to know Sean and I was immediately hooked. This podcast has become my quarantine buddy. I'm an avid movie lover, but I don't really have anyone in my life to geek out about them with the fun banter and respect all the guys have for each other makes the show so special. I genuinely look forward to hearing Kevin's puns and saying 
and Jake saying that he is quitting because he can't handle it anymore. You guys have so much knowledge, it blows my mind every single time. I recommend this podcast to everyone I know, and I can't thank you guys enough. Every time you guys talk about a movie I've never seen, I put it on my ever-growing watch list. Keep up the great work, and I appreciate you being my distraction during these crazy times. Dunkirk in all caps with three mm-hmm. exclamation points. And mm-hmm. that, my friends, is the reason why this show exists. I mean, that's what just a uh, Whatever. That's review. everything. Yes, that is everything, Anastasia. Wow. So thank you very much. Um, you can obviously send us a review at realblendedcinemablend.com. You can go onto the iTunes page uh, and log in and leave us a review. It helps our status go uh, well, some people say it helps your status. Some people say it has nothing to do with anything whatsoever. But we like reading reviews at the end of each show. So uh, keep an eye out for the Space Jam commentary track with Tony Savoni. Honestly, he had so many great stories to tell about being with Jordan and all the NBA superstars during that time. You can follow us on social media at at Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy TV and at Sean underscore O'Connell. Now, is that Sally or is that Jack? Is it? This is Sally. Uh, Lauren just handed them oh, to Sally. me. It wasn't. This wasn't planned. Yeah. Oh, uh, I, no, think, no, no. I think. Um, but but well, she'll be see. on the YouTube. Yeah, uh, she'll be on the YouTube page now. So another reason to tune into the YouTube <laughs> version of the show is you will get to see Sally, uh, Kevin's new pup. Obviously, Jack and Sally named after the uh, Nightmare Before should, Christmas. Should, should we should we put is, Jack on camera too? He's smitten. There you of go. course, you should put Jack on camera. That's no Look at those faces. Here he is. Look at that little face. I love it. Okay, that's Gabe, that's, that has to be his thumbnail, right? I mean, that is that should be the only thumbnail, honestly. Leave Jake and I out of this one and just put those three. Kevin, Jack, and Sally, please. I'd watch that. Uh, watch it be like the number one video <laughs> that we've ever had. Of all time. Uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Uh, and so until then, first off, thank you guys for listening and for watching and supporting the show. We cannot tell you guys how much we appreciate it. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, Dunkirk. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.